Chapter 58 War Pandu's war, the successor to the war to end all wars, erupted in Europe. And as German bombs exploded over Poland, the blast buffeted us in India. Well, what's the form then, Sir Richard? asked the Viceroy at his daily meeting with his cherubic Principal Private Secretary. Don the glad rags and deliver a proclamation from the steps of the Viceregal Palace, or does the rule book prescribe something different? We don't have many precedents of a declaration of war, Your Excellency, his aide admitted. I could have one of our chaps look it up, but I imagine you can pretty much make up the drill as you go along. What did we do the last time? the Viceroy asked, idly toying with a 13th century miniature shivalingam that served as a paperweight. The last time? Do you mean the Fifth Afghan War or the 17th campaign against the Waziris? I think we went in rather less for protocol than for powder in those engagements. In the British Indian tradition, when you wanted to declare war, you tended to do it with a cannon. Unless, of course, you weren't planning war at all, but a sort of extended picnic, like Sir Francis' young husband, who went out one morning with five horses and a Christmas hamper and came back having annexed Tibet. It was rather embarrassing at that time because nobody really wanted Tibet. But Sir Francis shrugged and explained that when he rode into Lhasa, the local warlords got up and surrendered and he had no choice but to accept that tribute. He really intended just to see the tourist spots and to get a few good pictures of the Potala Palace. One of his rifles went off accidentally and when he then saw all the notables on their knees cowering, couldn't really disappoint them by not conquering them. I think his punishment for taking Tibet was to have to work out what to do with the place. But anyway, to listen, to return to your question, I'm afraid there was no formal declaration of war there either, Your Excellency. Sir Richard, the Viceroy smiled amiably, his hands straying from the lingam to a jewel-encrusted dagger from Maharaja Ranjit Singh's collection that was now used to slit open confidential envelopes rather than throats. I don't mean any of those wars, of course. The last one in Europe we were mixed up in was the Great War. Ah, the principal private secretary reflected briefly. I think we heard about that one in India a few weeks after it had started in the old continent. And by then, there wasn't much point in a formal declaration. Of course, the Great War never really touched this part of the world very greatly. Except for all those Indian soldiers we sent off to fight in France and Mesopotamia. This one may, Sir Richard, touch this part of the world, I mean. The Japanese are in alliance with the Germans and may attack our possessions in the Far East. India is still a long way from their forces, but distances in today's world mean a good deal less than what they did 25 years ago. No, no, no. This time, when war is declared in India, it could really mean something for this country and her people. 
India may have to fight to preserve her freedom. I'm not sure all our Kaurava friends will quite see it like that, Sir Richard smiled humorlessly. Mr. Datta and his khaki-clad companions seem to think that what they're doing already with us is on the wrong side of the argument. Quite, the Viceroy nodded. But I think they draw a distinction between the two kinds of fight. The Mahaguru and his friends are fighting, if that's a word for their non-violent agitations, for, in the celebrated phrase, the rights of Englishmen. It's democracy they want. I hardly think they'll consider the Nazis a model for Swaraj, except for the fringe in the onward organization. We can lock that bunch up soon enough. And don't forget that Ganga Datta was once on our side the last time around. Quite actively, in fact, the Ambulance Association in Hastinapur, was it not? I, I haven't forgotten, Your Excellency, Sir Richard, who tended to think of Hastinapur as a personal heirloom, harumphed. But, but a lot of water and some blood has flowed under the bridge since those days. I've made something of a special study of Mr. Ganga Datta over the years, and I'm not convinced for a minute by his pontifical pacifism. Today, the sainted Mahaguru is just as opposed to British interests as his fellow vegetarian in Berlin. The Viceroy put down the dagger and gave his senior-most adviser a sharp look. I do believe your prejudices are showing, Sir Richard, he said mildly. India's non-violent saint statesman lending moral support to Germany's jackbooted stormtroopers. Now, I think Ganga Datta and most of the Kauravas, certainly Dhritarashtra and his socialist followers, will be happy enough to go along with a declaration of war on Nazi Germany. They've been quite critical of the Nazis in their public pronouncements on international affairs. But the point is, how do we go about it? It's easy enough to declare war, but do we um, consult them first? And in what manner? There was no elected Indian ministries to think about at the time of the last war. Now there are. I don't see how it's any of their business, Sir Richard defeated scowled. Come, come, Sir Richard. We propose to declare war on behalf of India, and we don't think it's the business of the Indian leaders we have? Precisely, sir. Sir Richard's eyes glowed redly above his pink cheeks. You, the Viceroy of India, will be declaring war on behalf of His Majesty the King Emperor, whose representative you are in this country, because those who are his enemies India only comes into the picture at all because it's one of the King Emperor's possessions. It has no independent quarrel with Herr Hitler and his friends. I know you don't agree with my view that Ganga Datta and his ilk would support Attila the Hun if it would help drive the Raj out of Delhi. But leaving the political reliability of the Indians aside, the point is that the only reason for India to be at war with Germany is that she's ruled by Britain. Britain is at war with Germany. 
British India must follow suit. The Indias governing their provinces, under supervision in any case of British governors appointed by the Crown, nothing to do with it at all. Defence isn't even their business. It's ours. He raised an eyebrow at his sovereign's representative. Quod erat demonstrandum, your excellency. Nex quire fas est omnia, the viceroy riposted. Nonetheless, why not consult them anyway? It should buck up that po-faced lot the Kauravas have in office. All the more reason not to, sir, the principal private secretary was emphatic. They are insufferable enough as it is. Why should we give them the additional satisfaction of being consulted when it is our nation that is under attack, our homes under threat, our armies and aircraft under fire? Personally, sir, I think it's humiliating to have to seek the consent of the Loincloth Brigade before we place His Majesty's subject here on a war footing. In my view, it's neither politically appropriate nor constitutionally necessary. Hmm, perhaps you've got a point there, the Viceroy conceded, rubbing a reflective chin. With respect, sir, indeed. And think what propaganda the Kauravas would make of it. The all-powerful Viceroy has had to ask them before he can declare war on another European state. It would be disastrous for our credibility with the man in the street, Your Excellency. Hmm, I think you may be right there, Sir Richard. It's just that I don't think they'll take it well. The last thing I need here at the beginning for war is a new set of political convulsions on my hands. Don't worry about a thing, sir. As Virgil put it, experto credite. I hope you're right, Sir Richard. As Horace reminds us, nescit vox missa reverti. Horace was, of course, right. Words once published cannot be taken back. With the declaration of war was made without the slightest semblance of consultation with the elected Kaurava ministries in the States, the Mahaguru's followers resigned their offices on block. An appointed official had no moral authority, they announced, to declare war on behalf of a nation whose elected representatives had not been consulted. The Kaurava party, Dhritarashtra added, might conceivably have endorsed a request to join the Viceroy in the declaration of war, not so much out of a desire to come to Britain's aid in her hour of peril, but simply because of the nationalist movement's dislike of international fascism. But the callous disregard by the colonial authorities of the legitimacy of the democratic process, a process, Dhritarashtra pointed out, by which Britain pretended to set such great store in whose defence it was supposedly fighting, had made such an endorsement impossible. The Kaurava party could not possibly remain in office in these circumstances. It would urge all Indians not to cooperate with the war effort. Vidur tried to advise his contemporaries and relatives against such precipitate action. Make your point, by all means, but for God's sake don't resign he pleaded with a sightless half-brother. You do not understand politics, Vidur, Dhritarashtra told him. Perhaps not, but I do understand administration. 
my youngest son responded. And one of the first rules of administration is, do not give up your seat until you know how much standing room there is. But they did not listen to him, Ganapati. A sheaf of identical resignation letters were wired to Delhi. As always, there was one governmental institution that never failed to do well out of a political crisis, the post office. There were thunderclouds on the Viceroy's brow the next morning, but Sir Richard persisted in seeing the silver lining. Jolly good thing is this, if you'll pardon me, your excellency, he beamed, his jowls quivering with satisfaction. With one stroke, or rather the absence of one, we have cut the doughty wallers down to size and got rid of a number of dangerous troublemakers from vital positions of power. Imagine Kaurava seditionists and anti-colonials in control of the ministries of supplies, food and agriculture, power and electricity, in major provinces at a time of war and national peril? It could have proved disastrous. Indeed, the black cloud seemed to lighten a little on the viceregal forehead. Instead, the principal private secretary affirmed, we can run these departments ourselves with tried and tested officials, or even, and he glowed at the ingenuity of the thought, even place other parties in office from amongst the minorities in the legislatures. They will be beholden to us, and since the Kauravas have forfeited their responsibility, we can hardly be blamed for turning to other elected Indians to do their job for them, can we? This will, in turn, weaken the Kauravas' base of support because they will no longer have any patronage to dole out. No more jobs for the boys, no more opportunities to operate the levers of power. And we will, therefore, have a weaker Nationalist Party to contend with in the years to come after the war. Oh yes, Your Excellency, I see a lot of good coming out of your excellent decision not to consult the Kauravas. The Viceroy let the implications of his advisor's last sentence pass. He was not yet convinced that he wanted the paternity of his unilateral announcement ascribed to him. I hope Whitehall sees it that way, Sir Richard, he replied, absently fingering his lingam and then drawing his hand away as if scalded by its procreative symbolism. And I trust you will draft a suitable note on the matter to ensure that they do.